If, if I did a systematic review of common sense, I might find nothing in the literature, but we hope that it does exist in veterinary practice. But a lot of protocols are developed and put into practice by practitioners for the benefit of their patients and clients. And I would suggest that your point on that, you know, giving that power to the practitioners is a very important one because that's a starting point. A lot, a, a lot of young graduates especially find making decisions very stressful. And if they're going to be told that if there's no guideline for that, well, you must follow this guideline, but there isn't any, I, I'm concerned that there could be some mental, mental health issues even. Yeah, def, 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 definitely. Um, and I think where we've come at it from in our own institute is very much trying to standardise the key areas upon which we have research themes. I mean, that's really what's driven that. So that, in essence, we've tried to do all we can to standardise protocols within about half a dozen key disease types. But absolutely, I think we're still at a point, you know, on the evidence-based journey at a very, very early stage. And for almost all of which we see in the hospital, or a large proportion of what we see in the hospital, there is no protocols, even within an academic centre for this. We have to then, um, you know, be reliant on clinical acumen, clinical judgments, you know, perceived wisdom and, 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 and all, all these other aspects. So absolutely, I think we have to be realistic and sort of say that there's not going to be guidelines for every scenario and it's not just going to, practice is not just going to be a recipe book. But nonetheless, from our point of view, it's been a huge, huge benefit to us being able to define the best way to treat patients by is initially at the very start agreeing to treat by a best practice approach in a certain way. And from our point of view, um, from an academic centre, I think this is really important. And, and if practices, particularly big corporate groups that are in critical mass, if people can be persuaded to think like that and then provide the platform to then do randomised controlled trials, I think that's a very, very positive thing. Just one final point on that. Um, a lot of practices do have these protocols, and, I, and but they're sometimes not the same as what you guys in the universities might tell us are true. But, and that is a, a source of conflict sometimes. Well, I, 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 would, I, would, I would back the practitioners and encourage you to be brave. And just because it's not what the academics think uh, doesn't necessarily in any way imply that you are incorrect. And if you have collectively decided that you want to treat in this certain way and you feel like, based on past literature, that that is a defensible approach, then I would really encourage people to step forward, even at that very simple entry-level type research of saying, we've treated X number of patients with this protocol and these are our treatment outcomes. Because if you do that, then the next step is then saying, right, well, actually, we're going to start a dialogue with academics or we're going to start a discussion with industry and we're going to see whether we can develop a way that improves on what our current rate is. I still think there's great appetite in the journals about publishing work, which is big cohorts of work treated in a standardised way. Even though some people are quite snooty about that, I still think there's a strong market for that, particularly if the response is better than what is perceived to be, to be the case um, historically. Just before we go to John, if I could just add, that's been the whole theme of this last three days, hasn't it, is, is that there are protocols, there, are, there is knowledge, there is experience, there is an enormous amount of information perhaps that needs to be supported by more robust evidence that suggests that what's happening in general practice is the right way to do it and some of the things that have been published in terms of the basis of academic or, if we shall say, specialist referral centres where there's been minimal numbers of cases that aren't particularly randomly selected are not going to be applicable for what's happening in practice. Professor Innes. 
Thank you very much, uh, Richard. Um, one of the biggest challenges we've got in companion animals is inbreeding in pedigree dogs. And uh, we live in a post-genomic era. You, you told us how cheap it is to sequence uh, the canine, canine genome. Um, but a major barrier to that is this silly workaround that we have to work with, which is the use of excess clinical samples. Um, the Scientific Procedures Act was there, to, written 30 years ago, to protect animals in research. It was not there to advance the understanding of uh, veterinary medicine or veterinary genomics. Um, and it's a major welfare issue for dogs now. And I think the UK actually is, lags behind some other significant territories, Scandinavia being an example, where it is legitimate to take a blood sample from a normal animal for the purposes of research that will benefit um, the, the whole breed group or whatever. Yeah. So I think, are we not, are we not well, as a say, country think, behind a, the curve here now? I think it's, a, it's an extraordinarily important point, and I think this is one of the areas that's been major frustration to us. And, you know, all of, you know, there's so many anecdotes I could sort of say about this, about the fact that we're so involved in Edinburgh with genomic research in dogs, and we've just recruited someone from the US who's focused in on the genetics of head morphology. This is absolutely the last thing in the world that I ever thought we'd be involved in. But now we have someone with real expertise and interest in this area. We're very keen to do all that we can to support it. So I'll perhaps just say a few points with that. The one issue where it takes the ambiguity out of it is this issue of buccal swabs, not, not scrapes, but buccal swabs. So for patients where we want to take samples, everyone should get the message that in most ethic review panels, they will allow you to take a buccal swab. Now, we've had a very heated debate in Edinburgh about this, and there's been a lot of um, politicking about this, but we're now at a very, very clear point, and this can be used as precedent elsewhere as far as I'm concerned, that the collection of a buccal swab, which allows the collection of DNA of a suitable quality for pretty much all purposes, is something that can be undertaken without, without an ASPA requirement. So I think we should all have the mindset that we can collect DNA with client consent and the usual permissions um, and the usual issues of confidentiality and withdrawal of that DNA. We can do that without doing it. Perhaps the second point I would add on that is that one of the things we're very interested in is, um, is about working essentially with clinical samples that are taken from healthy dogs. And we need to have this pipeline for a whole range of, of purposes, not less for assay development, for standardizations, for comparing our disease populations. And we've singularly struggled to do this. And so what we now do um, is that for every dog, healthy dog that comes into our practice, we then offer them the opportunity to have a health screening test. And, you know, I'm sure that in itself is quite an emotive topic and the value of that. From my point of view, I would argue that it has been of useful because it's allowed us to pick up in a small number of cases significant liver pathology, significant liver disease that then alters how we're going to proactively treat this otherwise quite well, well animal. And the flip side of that is, is that the vast majority are normal, they are come back healthy, that acts as a point of reassurance to the client, and then those samples can then be banked for, for purposes. So I do. I accept it's, um, it's, a, it's a difficult one, but I think we're now at a point where we have workarounds around that so that we can capture DNA quite routinely from healthy patients that can then drive genomic studies. Yes, uh, there are a lot of clients, more and more, they have uh, some funny ideas themselves about uh, therapy. Medical uh, trials, you know, especially uh, therapies who have not been accepted in, in neither in human medicine, uh, more or less, or like in veterinary medicine, you know, for instance, like homo, 
or homeopathia or, uh, or other stuff, uh, other, other therapies, you know, oxidative therapies, maybe with unproven effects, you know. What, what, what to tell them, you know, what is your opinion, you know, what should be accepted, uh, even if it could work, you know, we don't know. There are thousands of discussions about homeopathy or maybe other therapies not accepted in, the, in the established medicine. In the, what, what's, what, what are you? Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, well, I, I'd perhaps come back to the issue of homeopathy, but I, I, in essence, um, initially, we're, we're, I think in many ways in a useful position in the UK for having very clear guidance along the cascade. Um, so for certain treatments and, you know, for, say, our IBD population or our chronic enteropathy population, I think there's a growing consensus amongst the community that we would treat with a diet trial first. We would then, if it didn't work, then treat with an antibiotic responsive treatment. And if it's essentially had a treatment failure there. There are a few things that we can try, but ultimately start to think about immunosuppressive um, steroid treatment at, at the end of that. And I think, you know, we would try and persuade clients that this is what our specialist field would see as being best practice, not absolutely defined as this is absolute gold standard treatment, but there is a, a consensus. And this idea of consensus statements as being the next best thing exists with the IRIS guidelines for renal failure, for example, and for the management of proteinuria. I mean, there are quite a few areas around which we can say, well, this is what this pool of specialists think um, and quite honestly I'm a little uncomfortable going massively off piste with that. Um, the homeopathy thing, um, for, uh, you know, I'm sure that the, the, the letters in the Vet Times give a better uh, discussion of that than, than I can do but yes um, I, I would be quite keen to steer clients away from that and, and that's not a service we, we offer within our own clinic. Um, thank, thank you, Richard. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about incentives for investing time in research and that some of these incentives might be obviously shared between academically driven vets and in-practice vets, the obvious one being to improve animal welfare. But some of those other incentives might be quite different. So for an academically driven vet, there's, the, there's a big incentive to publish and obviously drive their career in that direction, whereas for an in-practice vet, the, the drive to publish may not be so big, but I wondered whether there was any scope for the RCVS to offer some kind of parallel accreditation scheme, um, not as part of the, the RCVS accreditation scheme, but something in, in, in parallel with it that kind of um, identifies practices that are um, engaged with, with approved research that has gone through the, the ERP, um, almost as a, to have a knock-on effect that, um, that engages the client and also reassures the client that the research that practice is, is getting involved with is, is approved by the RCVS. I, I, I mean, I'll perhaps come back to that, but I'll just hand over to um, a, a slightly more esteemed colleague on this. <laughs> Thank you. So one of the things that the College already does is um, part, as part of the practice standard scheme, under the new awards, you get points for taking part in um, various, uh, using evidence base, taking part in externally gathering uh, schemes like the RVC and things like that. So, so we are part the way there. Um, we, whether we could ever set up a, a register, like you said, it's possible, but certainly there are things already in place that are taking you part the way there if you're part of the practice standard scheme and if you do the awards. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, that from some of the discussions that I've heard of and been part of, I think there is much more of a drive towards getting this, you know, 
to try and allow it to allow it to be more readily easy or make it more easier for clients uh, for practices to highlight the fact that they are progressive that they are engaging in, in clinical research and I think there's been you know as you heard there are a lot of discussions about that from the practice standards route I think I would just try and you know at the level of just encouraging people that are interested in this to try it because I think you know life's never quite the same after you've undertaken research it's gone well um, you've seen it come into press and seen it change practice. And I think, you know, if we can encourage practitioners to do that as a community, um, then I think it'll just be something that will organically grow. Okay. Well, I think we're right on uh, a quarter to two. Need a cup of tea, coffee. So it just remains for me to ask you to thank Richard for a thought-provoking presentation and also thank the RCVS for instituting this uh, ethical review panel. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks. <laughs>